Today on Velshi, the powerful winter storm that swept across the country is still causing havoc from deadly road conditions to blackouts, blizzard warnings, freezing rain. We're going to get a live report coming up. Plus, it was a brutal defeat for Donald Trump's years-long campaign to hide his tax returns when House Democrats voted this week to release them publicly. We learned a lot from that release, but I've still got some questions. And in moments, I will be joined by the best possible person to answer them all, someone who won a Pulitzer Prize for her team's investigation of the failed ex-president's finances. And publishers are rushing to print out books, uh, book editions, really, of the January 6th committee's final report, three of which are already bestsellers on Amazon. Later in the show, I'm going to talk to the veteran of the Watergate investigation, former Congresswoman Liz Holtzman, who wrote the foreword for one of these books. Then, were the midterm losses the last straw? Are Republicans finally tired of winning, as Donald Trump promised they would be? If they stuck with him? Well, a conversation about what the naming and shaming of Donald Trump might actually mean for the Republican Party, for American politics, and for democracy, right ahead. Velshi starts now. Well, good afternoon. That is something I'm not used to saying. It's Sunday, December the 25th. Merry Christmas to all of you who are celebrating. I'm Ali Velshi, and we begin this hour with confirmation of one of the many major lies that the former president told the American people, this time regarding his taxes. Following a years-long legal and political saga, the House Ways and Means Committee was finally able to secure Donald Trump's tax returns, and they voted to release them to the American public this past week. Now, despite his insistent lies, Donald Trump's tax returns were not under audit when he ran for president the first time. And the IRS did not audit the personal tax returns of Donald Trump during his first two years in office. Now, this is an important point. It's interesting because beside being one of the former president's publicly stated reasons for not releasing his tax returns, the IRS has a program mandating the, quote, mandatory review of the president's individual tax returns. And that protocol was followed for Presidents Barack Obama and Joe Biden. The IRS did finally follow its own rules in the former president's third year in office, 2019, the only year it did uh, so. They started the audit in April of 2019, ironically, on the same exact day that the Ways and Means Committee requested a copy of Donald Trump's tax returns. Now, as for what we know from the committee's report, in 2015, Donald Trump paid just over $641,000. Remember, he wasn't president yet. In 2016 and 17, just 1500 bucks total, 750 bucks each year. In 2018, nearly a million dollars in federal taxes on more than $24 million in adjusted gross income. So it was a minuscule percentage. In 2019, also a good year for Trump, just over $133,000 in taxes on $4.4 million in income. 2020 was a bad year for Donald Trump in more ways than one. In addition to losing the election, Trump reported losing $4.8 million, and he paid no taxes at all. This appears to line up with our previous knowledge of Donald Trump's tax situation, including some of what he paid or rather didn't pay, along with his history of devaluing his properties for taxation purposes while overvaluing them for loans and insurance and ego. And essentially, all of what we know comes from the extraordinary Pulitzer Prize winning 2018 investigation from The New York Times, David Barstow, Suzanne Craig and Ross Butner. And from the monumental 2020 follow up from Russ Butner, Suzanne Craig and Mike McIntyre. Those reports are truly the definition of good journalism. 
With the 2018 investigation revealing Donald Trump's rich history of dodging taxes, along with the financial benefits of being born into his father's real estate empire, and the 2020 report revealing how Trump paid no income tax at all for 10 years between 2005 and 2020, and the paltry sum of 750 bucks in federal income tax in each of his first two years in office, which we now have confirmation of, and which are also the same two years which we know he somehow wasn't audited. Joining me now is the aforementioned Suzanne Craig. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter with The New York Times and an NBC News contributor. She truly knows more than almost anyone about Donald Trump's taxes. And her latest piece in The New York Times dives into all the latest developments and revelations. Suzanne, good morning to you. And once again, congratulations to you and your team for uh, reporting that I don't think anybody's ever seen before of this sort. You know, where it was just pages and pages uh, in the in The New York Times. But it was all necessary because... You had more detail and more understanding of Donald Trump's tax situation uh, prior to this report than anyone else did the release of these tax returns. What have you learned? Has anything surprised you or is it mostly corroborated what you believed uh, to be the case? I mean, in terms of just his money in the taxes, I think it's just confirmed what we knew, that he wasn't a great businessman. His businesses lose money, and he continued to lose money into the White House. He didn't do well in 2020, the year of the pandemic. And I have to say, what I what I kind of found shocking was the information that we learned about the IRS and about the audit. And I just want to and I want to kind of clarify something, just because it's so hard to keep track of all of these investigations that are going on, you know, both with his money and with the election and everything else. He actually was under audit in 2015, and it was an audit that stretched back to 2009. And we learned that if it went again, and this is part of our reporting leading up to the report, that if it went against him, it could cost him up to a hundred million dollars. We didn't learn a lot more about that audit, but and and it's still we we think it's still outstanding. What we did learn a lot about was this presidential audit and about the IRS and just that they were not really looking at it. They had his taxes and they weren't auditing him in the way they should. But more importantly, and I just want to read from the report because I I just I don't think I can say it really better. One of the lines that jumped out to me and they they just said that in, in one of the cases they were like, well, if if we he has a tax preparer, so it, his taxes are probably accurate. You know, that was one of the lines that came out, and it was just shocking. I mean, this is a this is a fellow who has, you know, his company was just convicted in federal court of tax fraud, and the IRS is saying, well, he has a tax preparer, let's rely on him. And then in another, and another issue that came up, there was several pages that looked at some of the issues that our reporting has surfaced, and they went through it. And in one case, the IRS flagged these consulting fees that his daughter got. She's a, she's a salaried employee, she's also getting consulting fees, and under the tax law, that could be problematic. And they actually said they looked at that, and they said it's unlike the issue, the issue will be material on most returns and the resources needed to examine would far outweigh the potential benefits. So they're just saying, look, we're not even going to look at it. I mean, it was kind of mind-blowing when we when we started to look through over and over and over um, issues that we have previously raised, no reporting or other issues. They sort of just didn't want to look at it. So I talked to uh, Representative Gwen Moore about this yesterday. She was on the committee and she pointed that out. And what I was trying to get to is, is that an IRS problem? Is that a Donald Trump problem? Because he's he had greater complexity to his business affairs than a typical president coming in. Most presidents have a a, a normal tax return that has normal income and and, uh, the IRS is well equipped to handle that stuff. 
what's what's at the root of this problem that they did not want to get into the complexity of it and the fact that he had tax preparers? Where's the failing there? I think we can only speculate, but it does feel like they had an audit program that was really geared towards somebody with a very simple 1040 tax return. You know, they had one person that was sort of in charge of of this looking at, at Trump's taxes. I mean, this needs a team of people. I mean, we have spent six years a group of reporters at the Times trying to get our hands around this. And it took years to get the tax information that we did. And they needed to put a team of professionals on to do it. I don't know if politics played in. Again, it's all sort of speculation. But it did feel that they were, you know, had presidents previously that had fairly straightforward tax returns. And it also just goes to the, like, kind of go big or go home. Like Donald Trump comes in and the problem, his tax returns are so complex and potentially some of the, the, there's some potentially fraudulent activity that's been, you know, flagged here. It was just too much for the IRS to get their hands around. I mean, it's sort of crazy when you think about it. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. You and I have known each other for more than 20 years, yeah. and you are so well equipped to to be able to understand the stuff that is is Greek to most people. Let's just go back to this whole idea of in 2015, he said he can't release his tax returns because they're mm-hmm. under audit. So you're saying that there was some at least one year's worth of tax returns, if not more, that were under audit in 2015. So if you can just clarify yeah. that for me, and would that have prevented him from uh, releasing his tax returns to the public regardless. Okay, so two questions there. The first one was he was under audit in 2015. Could have been for a multitude of issues, but the main one stems from something that happened in 2009 that he has been tangling with the IRS about. He got a big refund. It was something that automatically was triggered and the IRS has been fighting it. And if it goes against him, he would have to pay it back. And with interest and and potentially penalties, it could be more than $100 million. So he, he was under audit in 2015. It was put on hold as far as we can tell from the documents we have when he became president. Um, But that issue does not prevent him from releasing his tax returns. He said for a long time, we all heard, you know, multiple, multiple times over and over and over, I'm going to release my tax returns. Then it changed to I can't because I'm under audit. There's nothing preventing him from. But then when he steps into office, a separate thing, it's just like, um, it's actually another department, then starts doing this, this audit that is required of presidents. And that is where we're seeing that it potentially wasn't handled. Um, Not only it may not have happened for a couple of years, and it certainly wasn't as robust as it should have been. Is there any implication of the delay in the what should have been a mandatory audit? It's not it's not dictated by legislation. It's an IRS. I guess it's an internal rule or something. Um, Is there any implication that the delay or the mishandling of that was politicized because the commissioner of the IRS was a guy who had written an opinion in Forbes about the fact that Donald Trump didn't have to release his tax returns? And that guy then suddenly became the commissioner of the IRS. I don't know whether there's a, a connection between those two things. I don't know either. We can only speculate. Like in some ways, when you you look at this in isolation, it's quite shocking. But when you look at it in the totality of everything that happened during the Trump administration, it's just another completely yeah. not shocking thing to me. I'm care, but I just don't know. I mean, it just was so chaotic. Somebody could have put their thumb on the scale, maybe not. But you also do see very much. I just think this IRS wasn't equipped to do it. I mean, the IRS. I always I always say if they just enforce the tax laws in this country, um, there'd be a lot of money to do a lot of things. I mean, it's yeah. a matching system and they go after people who filed W-2s and, and they go after and they audit lower lower earners. I mean, it's just a simple thing. Once you get involved into the complexities of the tax laws and just how many people it would take 
to properly audit corporations and very wealthy people, you just see again and again and again breakdowns. It so does seem to be why. To be, that's the backdrop of this. For yeah. a lot of people who, who you know, have been tweeting me saying, how come it's all like low earners and middle earners who get um, who, who get audited because it's easy. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's it is a simple matching system. Yeah. You earn 50000 They see there should be a W-2 for 50000 If it doesn't match up, there's yeah. an audit just like yeah. that. That's yeah. not fair, but it's easy. I get it. No, uh, Suzanne, you definitely win uh, Cozy Christmas Room Raider um, today. Thank uh, you. That, that, and that I've, got, looks... I've got my dog Buster's just went ready to get on camera here. He's a bit hyped up from this morning. So. <laughs> uh, our Merry Christmas to you and to uh, Buster. Suzanne, great to see you. Thank you for your amazing, great amazing reporting on this. Boy. Suzanne Craig is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter with The New York Times and an MSNBC contributor and a fellow Canadian. All right, coming up, we're going to dig into all the new details from the latest tranche of documents from the January 6th committee with two of the smartest lawyers I know. Plus, Ukrainians woke up this Christmas morning to the sound of air raid sirens blaring their clarion call across the country. We're going live to Kiev for a report. Up next, the latest on the deadly winter weather that's causing chaos across the country this holiday. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. The death toll from this week's severe winter weather continues to climb. Overnight, four more people were found dead in Erie County, New York, as paralyzing temperatures, record snowfall, and blizzard conditions proved to be a fatal combination. More than half the country is reeling from the effects of a so-called bomb cyclone. In all, NBC News has learned of 32 deaths tied to the extreme weather conditions from the Midwest to the Northeast since Wednesday. The National Weather Service issued a warning letting people know that in some areas, if you go outdoors, quote, frostbite could set in within minutes. Snow is blanketing parts of the Northeast. Up to 48 inches are likely to accumulate in Buffalo, New York. The state's governor, Kathy Hochul, says that Buffalo is seeing the longest sustained blizzard conditions that have ever been recorded there. Separately, the unusually cold weather is causing problems in Texas. The U.S. Energy Department has declared a power emergency in the state because the cold weather has caused power plants to fail causing a shortage of electricity. You'll remember this has happened before in Texas recently. NBC News correspondent Jesse Kirsch is in Midtown Manhattan, a city so cold right now that one energy company is asking four million customers to conserve energy until further notice. Uh, Jesse, people are out and about, but it is cold in this city. Yeah, it really is, Allie. And this morning, it felt like about two degrees in Central Park, but we were still seeing people on their morning run, if you can believe it. And it feels even colder in other parts of the country, as you just talked about. And even though the winter weather issues, the FAA says, are starting to lessen their impact on the airports, this brutal cold is still going to be keeping operations at more of a crawl according to the FAA. And already for today, according to FlightAware, which keeps track of planes all over the country, we are already seeing more than 1,500 cancellations nationwide. This morning, it's a white Christmas for many Americans, but this storm is not pure joy. This holiday weekend, hundreds of thousands lost power amid bone chilling temperatures as tens of millions faced wind chill alerts. If you can go, 
uh, without the lights inside your house turned on. That may be the difference between one extra house out there having power. I understand for those who are dealing with a cold house that this is very, very uncomfortable and in some ways can be life-threatening. Officials blame the dangerous weather for at least two dozen deaths across multiple states. Vehicles stranded. First responders stretched thin. Overnight, the brutal winter storm pummeled Buffalo with blizzard conditions. Right now, a travel ban is in effect, with New York's governor declaring a state of emergency and deploying the National Guard. The Buffalo airport will be closed at least until 11 a.m. Monday. Uh, and, and so I think that's going to be Unfortunately, very disruptive to those who want to leave or arrive and spend time with family over the, uh, the Christmas holiday. The days-long weather woes causing widespread flight cancellations and delays, leaving Christmas plans in limbo across the country. This family scrambling for a way from Newark to Washington, D.C. for their rebooked flight that's supposed to leave today. A lot of people have it a lot worse than we do, so we'll, we'll make it through. We'll be all right. One group of strangers gave up on flying altogether, saying they drove almost 1,200 miles from Florida to Ohio, some of it through the storm, to get home to their families. Unfortunately, we've heard stories, though, of some people who are not going to make it home in time to be with their family for the holiday. One man, for example, that we spoke with by phone yesterday said that the earliest he was going to be able to get home is tomorrow. Obviously, that is after Christmas, and that was not his plan. Thankfully, those power outages that we've been seeing, the reported number of power outages is diminishing, which is good news. Obviously, there's a concern about people being able to stay warm at home alley, especially as we continue to look at western New York. Buffalo is getting pummeled by this winter weather. And again, this is not just uh, tough to deal with. It also can be dangerous and life-threatening, as you yep. underscored. And one other thing to point out for people who are trying to travel, uh, even as the weather improves, because there are planes that have been stuck in places they were not supposed to be, it could take days for the airlines to get their crews and their aircraft back on track because of how much of a headache this has been, Allie. Yeah, I've got a flight this afternoon, and I keep watching to see whether it's canceled, but it seems to be on uh, on schedule. I, I will say this. I grew up in Toronto, so Fingers about 35 crossed. miles uh, as you know, as a crow flies from, from Buffalo. I, I grew up <laughs> understanding all these storms. I mean, folks in western New York and Buffalo are completely, completely used to this. Uh, this is unheard of. The, the level of, I mean, 48 inches of snow in a short period of time. Time. Uh, it's going to take a while to get out of that. Jesse, uh, stay warm. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us this morning or this afternoon, I guess. I'm going to be doing that morning afternoon thing all afternoon. All right. After the break, we're going to head abroad for the latest on the ongoing protests in Iran, the American response and a live report from the ground in Kiev, Ukraine. Stay with us. You're watching Belshi. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that, that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.
This morning, members of the Kurdish community in Paris are calling for justice after the killing of three people on Friday, which French prosecutors say had racist motivations. Law enforcement says a 69-year-old suspect opened fire at a Kurdish cultural center in the city's 10th uh, district, instantly killing two people. The suspect then allegedly pursued a third victim who was killed at a nearby restaurant. Three others were wounded as well. The suspect was taken into custody. Uh, The Kurds took to the streets in protests yesterday and clashes with police ensued. According to the Paris prosecutor's office, the gunman specifically targeted immigrants and the motive for the attack was racism. Late yesterday, a gunman was sent to the psychiatric police facility after being diagnosed by doctors as unfit to remain in custody. Authorities say the suspect has been recently freed from detention while awaiting trial for a different attack on a migrant camp in Paris a year ago. If found guilty, the suspect faces life in prison. Turning now to Iran, the United States has announced new sanctions against Iranian officials after two anti-government protesters were executed. The Treasury Department slapped sanctions on Iran's prosecutor general, key military officials, and at least one company that Treasury says supplied equipment that Iranian law enforcement uses to suppress protests. Two men have been executed in the last two weeks. That's according to Iran's judiciary. They're the first known executions of people arrested for protesting since the unrest began more than three months ago. Last Monday, officials publicly hanged a man from a construction crane in Mashhad, according to a judiciary-run news agency. Around a dozen other people have been sentenced to death, according to human rights groups. The monumental anti-government protests were ignited back in September when this woman, 22-year-old Masa Amini, died after being arrested by Iran's morality police for allegedly defying the country's strict dress codes for women. This new round of sanctions is America's latest attempt at pressuring Iran to stop the violent crackdown on protesters, which has led to more than 450 deaths, according to the Iran Human Rights Organization. However... It is this kind of pressure that America's putting on Iran, rightfully so, that could affect uh, the renegotiation of the 2015 nuclear deal. In a newly surfaced video from early November, first reported by Axios, President Biden is heard saying of the Iran nuclear deal, quote, it is dead, but we're not going to announce it. White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby responded to that video release, saying there's no progress happening with respect to the Iran deal now. We don't anticipate any progress anytime in the near future. That's just not our focus. This is the strongest indication yet that the Biden administration feels that there is no path forward for the nuclear deal, which former President Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of in 2018. This leaves questions about the future of Iran's nuclear program at a time when Tehran continues to increase its enrichment of uranium to troubling levels, according to the U.N. nuclear watchdog, levels that bring Tehran just steps from being able to harness the power of a nuclear weapon. In the meantime, Iran met with EU officials in Jordan this week to discuss reviving the 2015 nuclear deal. Both sides signaled that those talks will continue. But remember, without America at those talks, America is what got that deal done in the first place. Without America at the table, there's probably not going to be a renewed deal. All right, let's go to the war in Ukraine now. On Russian state media this morning, Vladimir Putin claimed that he is, quote, ready to negotiate and that it's Ukraine that is unwilling to sit at the table. The message comes on the heels of a barrage of Russian air attacks in Ukraine this weekend, a warning that some of these images I'm about to show you are graphic. At least 10 people were killed. More than 55 were wounded in the city of Kherson. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky noted the destruction came as many citizens were just beginning Christmas celebrations 
which for many Orthodox Christians will culminate in a traditional celebration on January 7th, although many Ukrainians now celebrate Christmas today on December 25th. Zelensky delivered a Christmas message to his country saying, quote, we endured attacks, threats, nuclear blackmail, terror, missile strikes. Let's endure this winter because we know what we are fighting for, end quote. Joining me now is NBC News foreign correspondent, my friend Matt Bradley, who's live in the capital city of Kiev, Ukraine, as sun sets on uh, Christmas. Matt, first of all, Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Uh, for the first time, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine is allowing congregations to actually celebrate Christmas today. But today is a day that is fraught with mixed emotions. The day began with air raid sirens across the country. Yeah, well, Merry Christmas to you, Ali. There were air raid sirens, but, you know, this is something that is, and I hate to say it, but it is routine here in Kiev and across the country. There were air raid sirens here, but at least we didn't hear any real bombardments, at least not in the capital. But you were talking about that Christmas thing, and that is a really interesting issue, something we've been covering for the last several days in interviews with church leaders and adherents and faithful. We were just at a mass this morning in this church right behind me, St. Michael's, and I think uh, I'm not sure if you've been to Kiev lately, but this is um, this is a really beautiful church, yeah. and it is about a thousand years old. It was destroyed by the Soviets about a hundred years ago, and it was rebuilt. And now, for the first time ever, really, they had an official Christmas mass on December 25th, and that's because this church, like a lot of its parishioners, are determined to celebrate mass as a form of identity, as a way to associate themselves more with Western Europe than with Eastern Europe. So this is, you know, we talk about the war on Christmas in the U.S. This is kind of like here, a war for Christmas, where uh, basically deciding when you're going to celebrate Christmas is staking your tent uh, in whichever camp, you know, you whichever identity you want to choose, whether it's with Moscow or with the West. I spoke with one young woman whose family, like so many here, were celebrating their Christmas uh, by candlelight because of the rolling blackouts throughout this city. They were cooking their Christmas dinner over gas camper stoves. And here's what she had to say about why, for the first time, she and her family were having their Christmas dinner on December 24th, Christmas Eve, the night before Christmas, and not on January 7th when they have in the past. Here's what she told me. After a Russian invasion, we also uh, started getting to know more about our deep culture. It's culturally uh, closer to what we want to uh, celebrate. And um, and also that we feel closer uh, culturally to uh, the Western world uh, than the Orthodox world, who uh, people and countries who celebrate its parents uh, of January. So is this, is this a rejection of Russia and an embrace? It's partly like that. So the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, which has its affiliates here in Ukraine, that Russian Orthodox Church has been really close to Vladimir Putin. And they've been providing a kind of spiritual cover and a lot of justifications for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So it's no wonder that a lot of Ukrainians who consider themselves patriots want to distance themselves from Moscow and from the Russian patriarch. Allie? 
Matt, it's been I think yesterday was 10 months uh, of this war. You were there the night it broke out uh, and have been there a lot. Uh, this reporting that Vladimir Putin says he's ready to negotiate. That's the Ukrainians who don't want to. This is tricky because Ukrainians will say, what exactly are we negotiating for? You took Crimea in 2014. Then you took uh, the, these other places in Ukraine. We'd like our land back. And that's when the war will be over. Tell me what you understand to be the case here with Russia, with, with Putin saying, I'm ready to negotiate. Yeah, I got to tell you, Ali, negotiation is the longest four letter word in Ukraine right now. Nobody here wants to hear that. And when you talk to government officials, they reject it entirely. These sorts of negotiations, as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, that started back in the 1990s when the Ukrainians abandoned their nuclear weapons to placate Moscow. Those were part of negotiations. And that's when uh, negotiation became associated here with capitulation. And ever since the invasion back in 2014, when uh, the Russians took over Crimea and uh, Russian separatists, Russian back separatists took over the Donbass region, uh, nobody has been talking about negotiation uh, in any earnest way. The negotiations back then led to the Minsk agreements, two successive agreements that were not adhered to and that the Ukrainians say Moscow signed and then backed away from negotiations in the earlier part of the year. They collapsed after the human rights abuses of Bucha were discovered. So nobody here takes Vladimir Putin seriously when he uses the word negotiation. Ali? Matt, stay safe. I know you know this uh, drill and how you do it, but please stay safe. It's always uh, it's always good to see you on our show and uh, and and. We will see you again soon. You have a Merry Christmas. Matt Bradley for us in Kiev, Thanks. Ukraine. Merry Christmas. All right, let's make something perfectly clear. We all have a right to clean and safe drinking water, but apparently that's not the case for everyone in the United States. So why isn't the government doing more? We'll talk about this next on Belshi. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Today, residents of Jackson, Mississippi, are dealing with new water problems. The Associated Press reports that frigid temperatures have left residents with low to no water pressure since yesterday. According to city officials, crews are out right now trying to fix the situation. But sadly, water issues aren't new for the city, which has a predominantly black population. In August, the city's main water treatment plant suffered heavy flooding, which resulted in a lack of clean drinking water. Boil water advisories were issued across Jackson, and just last month, Justice Department sued the city because because of that problem, investigating the crisis as a potential civil rights violation, with one prosecutor saying, quote, every American, regardless of where they live, their income or the color of their skin, deserves access to safe, reliable drinking water, end quote. The question remains whether the federal government has done enough for the city of Jackson. NBC's Zinclay Esemwa has more. The city of Jackson has grappled with an ongoing water crisis for decades, subject to ongoing boil water advisories, brown water, and low water pressure. I spoke with residents of Jackson and the head of the EPA to hear what the federal government is doing to intervene. 35-year-old Danica Samuel is a mom of six and lifelong resident of Jackson, Mississippi, a city plagued with a decades-long water crisis. Water in the city is deemed safe to drink, but many residents still don't trust it. You should see my mama do the same thing that I do now for my kids. Every morning we come downstairs, we get us a big tall bottle of water. They put it on their towel, they wash their face, and they brush their teeth. 
The water crisis triggering an NAACP complaint in September alleging racist policies by Governor Tate Reeves and the state of Mississippi, claiming federal money was allocated to smaller, majority white communities instead of Jackson. Governor Reeves previously said his administration is committed to ensuring all federal funds are made available on an objective and race-neutral basis. The Environmental Protection Agency now investigating if Mississippi violated the Civil Rights Act. No city uh, in the United States of America uh, should have a fragile system that leaves 190,000 citizens without clean water to drink. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan says the federal government has not adequately invested in communities. Why do you think that a city that's over 80 percent black is facing a decades-long water crisis? Environmental justice is a serious issue in this country, which is why the president has made it a priority. We know black brown, tribal communities, low-income communities have seen a lack of investment, but also are on the front lines of the impacts of these lack of investments and climate change. Jackson was the first city Reagan visited following his 2021 appointment. I saw porta-potties lined all along the school, and I thought that was due to construction. But that's what the students have been using for years because they've been dealing with low water pressure. The White House says new bipartisan legislation will invest at least $50 billion in the nation's infrastructure, including expanding access to clean drinking water. It's my hope that the people of Jackson now get the type of relief that they've been looking for for decades. Danica Samuel hopes that relief comes soon. I want my six kids to have a wonderful future. I want this to go somewhere so my kids won't have to worry about unclean water. And it is important to point out that Administrator Reagan also warned that the EPA is preparing for residents in the U.S. to experience inconsistent water access this winter, particularly in areas of the country with intense storms and drought. Back to you. Uh, thanks to NBC's Zinclay Esamwa for that report. Never again has become again and again for multiple targeted minority groups across the globe. And a new documentary dives into the complicated and often disappointing calculus that nations make about who and when to help and why they sometimes look the other way. I'm going to talk to the director of the Corridors of Power when we return. A boat carrying 180 Rohingya refugees is feared to have sunk off the Indian coast, killing everyone on board, including 24 children. That's according to the United Nations. The boat had been stranded at sea for more than two weeks after the captain sent out a distress signal saying the engine had failed. As food and water dwindled, those on the boat begged for help, according to the Washington Post. But despite their increasingly desperate pleas for help and despite aid groups calling on neighboring countries to send out rescue missions, no one. Not a single country came to their aid. The Rohingya that are feared dead are members of an ethnic Muslim minority group from Myanmar, a predominantly Buddhist country. For decades now, the Rohingya have faced institutionalized discrimination, and in 2017, the Myanmar government launched a brutal military campaign that forced 700,000 Rohingya to flee. Back in March, the U.S. formally declared that the Myanmar military committed genocide against its Rohingya minority four years after the United Nations made the same determination. Pivoting to China, a U.N. human rights report issued in August found that China's treatment of its ethnic Uyghur population may constitute crimes against humanity. 
Efforts to launch a debate on that report at the United Nations Human Rights Council failed in October amid heavy lobbying from China. The Rohingya and the Uyghurs are just two communities of people facing brutal state-sponsored violence. There have been many others in recent years. Decades after the world's major powers reeled from the horrors of the Nazis and vowed never again, Oscar-nominated director Dror Moray shines a harsh light on that broken promise, revealing that genocide and targeted crimes against humanity would, in fact, happen again and again. Moray's powerful new film, The Corridors of Power, examines the often disappointing and complicated political calculus that goes into decisions about how the United States government, as the sole remaining superpower in the immediate post-Cold War era, has responded to reports of atrocity since the fall of the Soviet Union. The film, now playing in select theaters, is an attempt to grapple with America and the UN's ability, or inability actually, to stop genocidal crimes by focusing on six specific conflicts, from Kosovo and Kuwait to Bosnia and Rwanda and more recently Libya and Syria. The film combines on-the-ground footage of atrocities with introspective and raw conversations with State Department veterans and political heavyweights from several administrations over the last four decades, including Madeleine Albright, Colin Powell, and Hillary Clinton. Arriving at a pivotal time in the world, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine increasingly being described as a potential third world war, this uh, this film grapples with why some atrocities trigger U.S. action while others don't. Here's a look at the trailer. Do you want justice or peace? You can't have both. This is one of those very difficult calculations. We were not successful. Hundreds of thousands of people are being killed. How can you live with yourself? I should have insisted on getting more involved, and I didn't. I believe in peace. I'm not a pacifist. Indifference is a sin. We must do something. So the primary question is really no longer what do we know? The question is what are we going to do about it? So you didn't debate what will be the next steps after the war? You didn't debate that? No. Joining us today to discuss his powerful new film is the Oscar-nominated director, Dror Moray. Dror, uh, congratulations on the film. It took you a long time to do this. You've actually focused uh, on, on two former secretaries of state who, who are not even living. Um, you were triggered to this conversation by something that, that, that confounded all of us, and it was Syria. It was the, the things that the Syrian regime was doing to its own people— and, and what the rest of us figured out is there's no actual mechanism for this. There's mechanisms sometimes for countries that invade other countries or countries that go over a border to pro- persecute people. But when people do it to their own people, there's very little that the world can do. Yeah. Ali, thank you for having me in this show. I'm very happy to be here. And you're right. What what triggered me to this movie is seeing after Obama's red line declaration that the, the use of chemical uh, weapon will be abhorrent and unjustifiable. And he will act upon that. And then you saw the chemical weapon attack, which was in Ghouta. And 1,500 people died, among them more than 400 kids. And nothing has been done. And that's after the red line of the president. So I asked myself, 
after the intervention in Libya, why did they intervene in Syria? Did they intervene in Libya but not in Syria? And that kind of initiated the the going out for the, to doing to do this movie. What did you learn? Um, because one of the takeaways I think from the film is that national interest for Americans or for the American government is not the same thing as as human rights. The average person might think those two things are connected, but in fact, they're more disconnected than we'd like to believe. You are absolutely right. National interest is where America has a real pivotal interest to intervene. So, for example, in Ukraine now, America is helping Ukraine because there is an interest there that Putin will not swipe away the d- democracies and will go after that if there were no in- there were no response by America he would probably go into NATO countries believing that he will not do that but Putin assumed that because of what happened in Syria when he intervened in Syria and nothing happened there and although you know the flock of refugees went into Syria and from there from Syria to all of Europe changed basically the face of Europe Nothing had happened. And Putin kind of assumed probably that if he will do that in Ukraine, the same thing will happen. So the national interest of America is defined by one person, and that's the president of the United States. He is the one that defines what comes in to the national interest and what comes out of that. So, for example, Rwanda in the mid-1994 was not a national interest for America. And there, in 100 days, 900,000 people were killed by machetes mostly. And nobody can claim that they didn't know because the the information of what was going on in Rwanda was available to the decision maker during that time. It was, in fact, in in many cases available to the public. Dror, you know, I know that Russia, Ukraine and Russia are not a focus of your of your documentary. But at this point, you had somebody we just played in the trailer who said you can choose justice or you can choose peace. You can't have both Um, justice in Ukraine, for instance, would be getting their land back, including Crimea. Peace would mean the the air raid sirens not going off on Christmas morning and more people not being killed. Is it true? Do you believe that you can't you can have justice or peace, but not both? I think sometimes you can have both, but we have to be reasonable. We have to be, I don't, for, for example, if we are speaking about what goes on in Ukraine now, I don't think at the end game can include justice and peace. I don't see Putin withdrawing all his forces from Crimea and ba- basically having to admit failure, complete failure for his, his diplomacy or he, what he did. Uh, so in the case of Ukraine, I think that hopefully that there will be peace Justice, I don't think we will achieve in Ukraine. But there are other examples where you can see that justice and peace happen together, not more often. I have to say, you know, when I started this process of doing the movie, I was more an idealist. And I would take the title of Samantha Power's second book, The Education of an Idealist. Yeah. I I was educated during the process of doing the movie to understand that you the world is full of bad people. And sometimes justice doesn't work with peace. You you have to achieve what you wanted. And basically, this guy that spoke about it, he was speaking about what happened in, in Darfur and saying, you know, it was during the time that Omar al-Bashir was in power and justice was not available. So he said, you know, you have to work with what you have. You have to try to achieve justice and peace cannot work together sometimes. So... Huh. While Putin is in power, we cannot achieve uh, justice. Maybe we can achieve peace for the Ukrainian people. 
All right. Well, it's not an uplifting message, but at this point, we need messages. We need to we need critical thinking. We need to be able to look back at history and understand how decisions are made. And you've helped us helped us do that. Uh, Dora, thanks very much. Dora Moray is the filmmaker and the director of The Corridors of Power. The film is in select theaters now, and it will soon air on Showtime. All right. Don't go anywhere. Straight ahead. The latest details from the historic January 6th committee report. We're going to look at the law, the history and the path forward for American democracy. Another hour of Velshi starts after the break. Sunday, December the 25th. Merry Christmas to all of those who are celebrating. I'm Ali Velshi, and we begin this hour with the very latest on the investigation into the insurrection and the historic January 6th committee's highly anticipated final report. The document is massive, both in scope, it's 845 pages long, and in importance, especially relating to the future of democracy in the United States. However, synthesizing the monumental report down to one line is easy, and it's this, quote, The central cause of January 6th was one man. The man is exactly who you think it is, Donald J. Trump. And the report also notes, quote, none of the events of January 6th would have happened without him. Separately, the committees voted to refer Trump to the Department of Justice for prosecution on four criminal charges, including obstruction of an official proceeding and inciting, assisting or aiding and comforting an insurrection. Important to note right now that the 14th Amendment of the Constitution bans individuals who've, quote, engaged in an insurrection from holding federal or state office. And the committee's final report also details several proposals to prevent another January 6th style attack, including having Congress invoke the 14th Amendment and barred the insurrectionist former president from holding public office again. It all comes as Congress has passed a major $1.7 trillion spending bill, which includes an overhaul of federal election law. Not, I mean, it's not an overhaul, but there's some stuff that's changed, some very, very important stuff about the Electoral Count Act in an effort to prevent another January 6th by revising that act, which comes from 1887. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and MSNBC legal analyst, co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Also with me is Elizabeth Holtzman. She's a former congresswoman for the state of New York. She is the counsel at Herrick Feinstein LLP, and she is the author of the foreword of the Skyhouse Press print edition of the January 6th report. Importantly, she was a member of the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Liz, I, I appreciate uh, having you here because you've got a, a sense of history because of Watergate and what, how that all progressed through Congress in a, in a meaningful way and ended up with the, the resignation of Richard Nixon. This has been entirely different. This was technically bipartisan, but it had absolute uh, uh, opposition from most of the Republican Party. And yet they have come out with 845 pages of this thing, interviewed a thousand people, have a million pages worth of documents. They're literally releasing transcripts on a daily basis. What's your evaluation of how this January 6th committee has done? Well, I think they've done a spectacular job. I think they were faced with the fact that there were some prior uh, hearings that didn't win public attention. They had a TV consultant, a TV executive who helped uh, shape the narrative into something that was compelling and dramatic and that people listened to and that the American people grasped. Not everybody. Remember, when Richard Nixon resigned, even though it was total bipartisan condemnation of him, there still were about 24 percent of the American people who loved him and would have followed him over a cliff. Okay, you can't get everybody support all the time. But I think the committee did a fabulous job in presenting the facts clearly, simply using Republicans so you couldn't attack the witnesses for partisanship and presenting it 
in a coherent and compelling, powerful narrative. The difference between now and, oh, sorry, and Watergate is when Nixon resigned, he was he was out of, you know, he was em- emasculated. He had no more power. We still have Donald Trump uh, out there claiming to come back, wanting to come back. Claiming and wanting to come back. Here's the interesting part, uh, Barbara. Uh, putting aside the political pressure on Donald Trump, including from uh, Mitch McConnell, who's finally actually named him as the problem uh, in the Republican Party. There's enough going on with Donald Trump uh, that that. It's not Richard Nixon resigning, but there's enough pressure between the January 6th committee's report, the criminal referrals to the Justice Department and the various other uh, cases that are proceeding against him to actually have the effect in a different way. I think there's a possibility, although, Ellie, it seems like Donald Trump loves to play the role of the victim. You know, grievance, resentment is very much his brand. And so, uh, you know, when he is under attack is when he is uh, most aggressive. Uh, you know, he, he believes the best defense is a good offense. And so that's why you see th- him saying really outrageous things like, terminating the Constitution. And I think those statements are actually really dangerous. I think, you know, one or more of these investigations are likely to snare him and hold him accountable. But in the meantime, I do worry about the effect he could have and the damage he can do. But uh, I believe that ultimately he will be held accountable and ultimately that will help quell all of the unrest that comes from his efforts to divide the country. Uh, Liz, what about the rest of it? There's a there, there's a criminal repro- referrals, which everybody is focusing on for good reason, because they'd, they'd like the Justice Department or Jack Smith or uh, Merrick Garland to do something about it. But the committee came out with all sorts of other things, one of which is this 14th Amendment, the invoking of the 14th Amendment. That becomes a little bit tricky because he actually hasn't been convicted of anything yet. Lots of people have been convicted of stuff. We know that there was an attempted insurrection. The report says wouldn't have happened without Donald Trump and that he was the cause of it. But that, again, now gets politicized because if Congress has to invoke the 14th Amendment, particularly a Republican-controlled Congress, to say this guy's an insurrectionist so he can't hold office, I'm not sure I'd hold my breath for that. Right. I I think that any congressional reforms uh, that are recommended by this committee um, or by anybody else trying to improve the electoral process and make it fairer and and less susceptible to the kind of corruption and attack that we saw under Trump – is likely to fail because uh, the Republicans in the House will just not move forward on it. So the Electoral Count Act reform is is vital. I think the most important thing is really for the prosecutors in the Department of Justice to do their job and not to shy away from prosecuting a president if the evidence is there and the law is there. Because the framers of the Constitution did not create a king. You couldn't prosecute the king. You couldn't impeach a king. But the framers made it very clear that anybody who was uh, in office could be prosecuted. They're not immune. And we should not create an immunity for presidents because that would be the most dangerous thing we could do. It would be almost as dangerous as what Donald Trump did. Barbara, what's your sense of it? Uh, can, can anything happen on that front short of a, a criminal prosecution by the Department of Justice that results in a, a a, a decision, uh, a ruling that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist? It's a really interesting question, Ellie. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question because it is so untested. We have seen it play out in New Mexico with 
someone uh, who was a local official there who participated in the January 6th events where he was kept off the ballot. And so what I think the, the mechanism is, it's unspecified in the Constitution, is in each state when people are determined whether they are or are not eligible to appear on the ballot, someone could raise a challenge if Donald Trump's name appears there uh, in a race for president based on what we've seen already. There'd have to be an adjudication, but I think each state could do its own adjudication. And if he were to be kept off the ballot in you know, only a few key states, that could be enough to keep him out of office. Liz Holtzman, uh, the, the likelihood, um, there, there's four charges that have been referred to the, the Justice Department. Everybody keeps on saying they have no, no uh, legal weight, but that's not the relevant part of this. A congressional te- uh, a report that is 845 pages long with lots of supporting documentation is now gone to the, the Justice Department where someone is on the case of actually investigating Donald Trump. There are a lot of people, and I've had this conversation with Barbara, that, uh, who say the insurrection charge is, is the biggest and, and possibly most important, but it is definitely the hardest to prove, and it is the one uh, that is going to be most politicized. What's your sense of whether or not the Department of Justice may or may select that to pursue for those reasons? It's, it's a hard thing to bring a case against the former president um, that is a hard thing to prove anyway. Well... I don't know. The insurrection took place in front of the American people. Everybody could see it. Everybody saw exactly what Donald Trump did and didn't do. They saw him exhort the crowd to march to the Capitol. They heard him exhort the crowd to fight like hell. They saw that he sat and did nothing for more than three, two hours, two and two plus hours. So, That tells American people a lot and it tells law enforcement people a lot, whether you can, whether they want to bring the charge in the end after looking at all of the history and the uh, and study the insurrection statute is something else. But I think the insurrection statute in a way encapsulates exactly what Donald Trump was trying to do, which was he was trying to overthrow the authority of the United States. Yes, he made false statements. Yes, he obstructed this. Yes, he did that. But what was the intent and the purpose and the significance of his act was to overthrow an election and overthrow the constituted authority of the United States government. And we've never seen that before uh, from a president. And it's, it's a shocking, horrifying and scary thing. Thanks to both of you. Good to see you both. Thank you. Uh, and Merry Christmas to you both. Barbara McQuaid is a former United States Thanks. attorney. and MSNBC Same to you and analyst. to your audience. Thanks, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Holtzman is a former congresswoman for the state of New York. She's the author of the foreword for the Skyhouse, uh, Skyhorse Press print edition of the January 6th report. All right, still ahead, the one and only Steve Kornacki breaks down the all-important lessons we've learned from this year's midterm elections and what to look for in the next divided Congress. Plus, the latest on the war in Ukraine, one day after unleashing a wave of air attacks on Ukrainian civilians, Russia's Vladimir Putin says he's ready to negotiate. This coming from the man who started the war completely unprovoked. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky referenced multiple historic battles for freedom this week during his speech before Congress, history that all Americans should know. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the importance of those mentions and what it says about the resolve of the Ukrainian people. It's difficult for most Americans to truly understand the gravity of Ukraine's ongoing fight for freedom against Russia. So when Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed Congress on Wednesday, he tried to appeal to Americans by invoking references to two historical military battles, the Battle of Saratoga 
and the Battle of the Bulge. Both were considered turning points for America in very different ways. Zelensky compared the Battle of Saratoga to his military's fight for the small eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. The Russian military and missionaries have been attacking Bakhmut nonstop since May. They have been attacking it day and night, but Bakhmut stands. Just like the Battle of Saratoga, the fight for Bakhmut will change the trajectory of our war for independence and for freedom. Let me tell you a bit about that reference. The Battle of Saratoga was fought during the Revolutionary War by the American patriots who wanted to gain independence from Great Britain. At the beginning of the war, America faced many defeats against the British and their strong military allies, but the tide started to turn in September of 1777. The Battle of Saratoga consisted of two crucial battles fought 18 days apart. The fierce fighting began on a farm in Saratoga, New York on September the 19th, 1777. Momentum switched sides throughout the intense fighting, but it's said that the British suffered double the number of casualties that the Americans did during that first part of the battle. While the Brits waited for reinforcements, the number of American troops grew. The fighting continued on October the 7th, 1777, with British supplies dwindling fast. Eventually, the American patriots had the British redcoats surrounded, and with few options on the table, the British surrendered to the Americans, dealing a decisive victory to America and changing the trajectory of the revolution. In present-day Ukraine, the battle for Bakhmut has been relentless for nearly five months, with incessant bombings and attacks by Russia. But as Zelensky said, Ukraine has held strong in Bakhmut. The Ukrainian army has already performed far above expectations, tiring the Russians, depleting their weapons and supplies, like at Saratoga. So if Russia manages to win the battle for Bakhmut, it will come at great military cost. And Zelensky compared the broader Russian conflict to the Battle of the Bulge, a World War II turning point between the Allied powers and German forces during Christmas time. They threw everything against us, similar to the other tyranny, which is in the Battle of the Bulge. Threw everything it had against the free world, just like the brave American soldiers which held their lines and fought back Hitler's forces during the Christmas of 1944. Brave Ukrainian soldiers are doing the same to Putin's forces this Christmas. <laughs> Ukraine, Ukraine holds its lines and will never surrender. The Battle of the Bulge was the last major offensive by Adolf Hitler's forces on the Western Front during World War II. Winston Churchill called it the, quote, greatest American battle of the war. The brutal fight lasted a grueling six weeks from December 16th, 1944 to January 25th, 1945. In a surpri surprise attack in the Ardennes region of Belgium on day one, the Germans massacred hundreds of Allied troops and civilians. Some 30 German divisions assailed battle-fatigued American troops across 85 miles of dense forest in frigid temperatures. Hitler's aim was to split the Allies in their drive toward Germany. The German line took a strange shape, a bulge, where the German offensive pushed back the Allied line giving rise to the battle's name. But Britain, France, and America dug in against the German troops. Weather conditions finally let up on Christmas Day, 1944, allowing for the Allied air forces to strike 
And that dealt a monumental blow to the Germans. America and the Allied forces claimed victory in the Battle of the Bulge on January 25th, 1945. The entire war ended less than five months later. The timing of Hitler's mid-December attack was strategic, as is Vladimir Putin's latest military strategy. By targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure, Putin is brutalizing the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian population with the elements Using winter as a weapon, freezing temperatures, no means to keep warm. Zelensky likened his country's struggle against a ruthless autocrat to the intense fighting that American troops faced during both the Battle of Saratoga and the Battle of the Bulge. In both battles, American troops prevailed against all odds. They held the line against forces that appeared more powerful, more prepared than they were. That's what Ukraine is doing right now, holding its own against all-powerful Russia and a force that appeared more powerful and more prepared than they were. The war that Vladimir Putin predicted would last just days is now going on 11 months. It says a lot about the resolve of the Ukrainian military and its civilians and the leadership of Volodymyr Zelensky. New this morning, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, says that he's ready to begin peace negotiations with Ukraine. In an interview that aired today on state TV, the Russian leader told local reporters, quote, we are ready to negotiate with everyone involved about acceptable solutions. But that is up to them. We are not the ones refusing to negotiate. They are. Of course, that sounds like a bunch of nonsense, and U.S. national security experts agree. They say Putin's Christmas morning announcement is completely at odds with the reality on the ground in Eastern Europe. Earlier this month, CIA Director Bill Burns told reporters that the agency's assessment was that Russia was not yet serious about a real negotiation to end the war. This comes just one day after the Kremlin unleashed a brutal Christmas Eve attack on a residential area in the city of Kherson. According to the regional governor, at least 10 people were killed and 58 people injured when several bombs landed in the recently liberated city. The Kherson governor wrote on Telegram, quote, on a day off on the eve of Christmas, the Russians attacked the city center. They attacked the market, the shopping center, the residential buildings, administrative buildings, the places where people where most people are. There are no military facilities even nearby. This is a targeted attack on civilians. I'm joined now by someone who knows the impact of this war firsthand. Terrell Germain Starr is a journalist and a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He also hosts the Black Diplomats podcast. Terrell spent years living, studying, and working on and off in Ukraine. He was there when the war began in February. He spent weeks reporting on the devastation while also working with local residents to help people flee the violence. Terrell, good to have you here. Thank you for uh, being with us. Thanks for the time and effort that you uh, have devoted to this story and telling parts of it that, that we don't don't always understand the, the Ukrainian resolve. Let's just talk about that, because you, like me, spend most of your time on the ground there with people as opposed to with office holders and things like that. They got a lot of resolve, but it is cold. It is now heading into the second winter that they will have to withstand this. The Russians are targeting uh, power uh, plants, which they didn't they weren't doing a year ago. It's not going to break the resolve of the Ukrainian people that you have met. Absolutely. So when Putin says I, I, we're ready to negotiate, I, I guess so. Look, let's just think about this here on Christmas Day. Ten months ago, Russian President Vladimir Putin believed that he would be in the middle of Kiev 
celebrating Russian Christmas right. and liberating the Ukrainians from the so-called Ukrainian Nazis and whatever nonsense right. that he was talking about. That has not happened. We see the attacks on the Ukrainian infrastructure because they're losing on the battlefield and they don't have the capacity, the resources or the logistical knowledge or, quite frankly, the competence to advance any further into Ukraine. In fact, they're losing ground bit by bit, depending on where you are in the country. And so right now, when you talk about the resolve of the Ukrainians, I speak to my friends all the time, every day, and they say that, excuse me, they're coming up with ways to um, get around the uh, lack of electricity and they're getting around uh, the frustrations with um, being in the dark. And so the constant refrain to me is we will never be under Russian rule. We will never be their slaves. Right. That's just an attitude that they continue to have. And that's not going to change. And, and, and the refrain that I heard back then and you hear now is when we're talking about negotiations, we're not talking about giving up any territory. In fact, most Ukrainians would like Crimea back. In, in fact, the thing about Crimea, everyone asks me, what's the chances of Ukraine getting Crimea back? That's going to be a tough challenge sure. primarily because, you know, even though Crimea Crimea is Ukraine, it's, it's very different from Kherson. It's very different from Luhansk and Donbass. Right. And so they're just far more entrenched there. Yes. And so and, and just tactically, in order for them to be in firing range, they have to get to the southern region of Kherson. Um, that's not going to happen anytime soon. It will happen eventually, I do believe. Right. But when, we're not sure. But it's definitely something that's possible, primarily because they have the capacity to fight back. And the Russia being the second most powerful military on Earth, that myth is gone. So right. this mystique about how the, uh, the fearsome Russian military has been broken and it's given them optimism. I want to just make a point that you just made uh, more clearly here. The, the idea that Russia can't advance on the ground in any meaningful way and take new territory and has actually lost territory has resulted in these attacks on energy plants because you can just send a missile to one. So they say the Russians argue that these are uh, these these uh, plants that create electricity that they're hitting are being used for military purposes. But in fact, we've watched for 10 months civilian atta- civilian infrastructure being attacked and these electrical plants in places that have nothing to do with that are nowhere near the front. Oh, absolutely. Even when I was in Ukraine, uh, I, I was nearly hit <laughs> myself yeah. under missile attacks that were in civilian areas. And, and the thing about these missile attacks against civilian infrastructure they do serve a military purpose in a sense right. that the Russian military is losing. Right. And so the whole point of hit, hitting the, the civilian infrastructure is to force the Ukrainian population into asking their government to capitulate, to right. to to give in. I but want my not, I want my electricity want my back. Electric, but, yeah. but they don't care about that. Their whole thing is we will freeze. And kids are conditioned to think this. When I was walking around Ukraine and you talk to the small, the youngest people, they're all saying that we're willing and we're we're, we're going to sacrifice and suffer because we don't want to be under Russia. Well, that's the constant refrain. Very simplistic. But I think the main thing is that Putin really does not understand the Ukrainian people or his quote unquote brothers like he thinks that he does. And so I think that there's still a shock that's going on to think, oh, my God, I thought that you people loved us. I thought that you liked us. And he's, you know, he's he's getting bad intel, but he's also delusional. And that goes into. So for all those NATO countries that were alarmed that if he gets Ukraine, he's going to come after us. It seems evident that Vladimir Putin's Russia has no ability to invade an actual NATO country and face the wrath of what will happen if they tried that. Listen, in all respect to Ukraine, right? Um, we all know that most NATO countries are far more equipped. So, yes. you know, their yeah. training is much better. Um, they have far better technology. Um, we're not giving Ukraine 
portraying our best equipment. We're not right. giving our best uh, our, our fighter jets. We're not giving them our best. We're not giving them that. Uh, we're not giving them our best tanks. We're not giving them the best of anything, even though they do deserve it, right? And so, just imagine them even going against Poland and right. what that would represent. Right. Um, they don't, and, and they don't have the capacity to do it. But the the main thing that we need to pay attention to is that eight years ago. Ukraine was a military on paper for them to move from. I've had people say, well, Terrell, we were trying to decide what the Ukrainians want on this day or that day. They were so disorganized. Right, right. And now that they are able to fight back Russia eight years later, it's, amazing, it's, a, yeah. it's a miracle. Yeah. It wasn't supposed to happen. This there, was, it, there were a lot of people who thought that despite what we thought, we, we overestimated Russia's capacity, but fully under, underestimated because we didn't yeah, Because we didn't know yeah. how well the reforms would take place because everyone's yeah. focused on the militarily, but also there was civil society in Ukraine yes. that facilitated the space so that Ukraine could receive this foreign aid. Yeah. Eight years ago, all of this investment militarily um, would not have happened because right. they didn't have the capacity to do so. Amazing reporting on your part. Thank you, my friend. We have many conversations to have. Terrell Germain Starr is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and the host of the Black Diplomats podcast. All right, up next, the one and only Steve Kornacki shares some important lessons the country learned after the 2022 midterms. And they're not all Trump-related. Uh, the year's not over yet, so we have a little bit of time to look back at the November surprise. Democrats exceeded expectations at midterm elections. They beat back a predicted red wave, defeating a slew of Donald Trump-endorsed candidates and potentially putting a dent in his influence with the GOP going forward. NBC's Steve Kornacki is at the big board with a look at the lessons we have learned from that state of slate of elections. All right. Well, we started 2022 asking if there'd be a big Republican wave. We end 2022 knowing that there wasn't. Republicans do get control of the House, but they get it by a very slim margin and they end up losing a Senate seat. So what happened? What did we learn from this midterm cycle? Well, one thing that I think really stands out is Joe Biden. Democrats had a good midterm cycle politically, relatively speaking, in spite of the unpopularity of the president, 44%. This number is from the exit poll on election day, only a 44% job approval rating for Biden. You know, we've been trained, we've seen in modern elections, this kind of number for a president in a midterm election has always in modern times meant political catastrophe for the president's party. I mean, just take a look here. These are recent presidents. This is their approval rating uh, during midterm elections. Trump in 2018, Barack Obama in 14, and in 10, George W. Bush in 2006, their approval ratings all basically right where Joe Biden's was this year. And you remember, 18 was a disaster for Republicans. They lost 40 seats in the House. 14 was a disaster for Democrats, especially on the Senate side. They lost nine Senate seats in that House, uh, 13-seat loss for Democrats in 2014. They didn't have that many seats left to lose. Otherwise, that number probably would have been bigger. 63-seat loss in 2010, 30-seat loss for Republicans, and big on the Senate side. This is what a low approval rating has meant in modern times. And Biden's number, a lot of Republicans were expecting, a lot of Democrats were fearing it was going to mean something similarly politically catastrophic, and yet it didn't. Why? What broke in Democrats' favor? Well, I think what really stands out is this. What you're looking at here is the independent vote in the midterm elections, and Democrats actually won the independent vote by two points. And all of these recent presidents we were just going through who had rough midterm elections, you see in their midterms, 
the independents broke for the opposition party by double digits. That's what we've kind of been conditioned to expect. If a president is unpopular, the independents go to the opposition party and they do it in big numbers. They didn't do that this year, even though Biden still wasn't that popular. So let's dig into those numbers a little bit more. Let's take a look at independence. Again, I say Biden was not that popular. That was especially true, is especially true with independent voters. 60% of independents said in the exit poll they got an unfavorable view of Biden, a majority an unfavorable view of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party, Joe Biden, not popular with independents. But you can see it here. The Republican Party, and especially Donald Trump, even less popular, significantly less popular with independent voters. So I think you start to see here, we typically think of these midterm elections to referendum on the president, a referendum on the president's party. That's typically how they've run. I think there was probably a referendum aspect here on the opposition party and the man who most recently led the opposition party this year. It's a dynamic you don't usually have in midterm elections. Uh, also, take a look at this. When you ask, uh, you know, talk about the, the role of Donald Trump, his sort of lingering presence in the center stage of American politics, the January 6th hearings this summer, asking independent voters about the state of democracy. Nearly three quarters said they feel democracy is threatened. And, and just look at how these voters split. Those independents who said democracy is threatened went for Democrats by a 16 point margin. Those who said they consider it secure voted for Republicans by a six point margin. And just a lot more independents said they considered democracy threatened. So an unusual result, an unpopular president and his party wins the independent vote and staves off what I think a lot of people that started this year expected to be a political disaster for Democrats. Instead, they gain a seat in the House and they come within five uh, in the Senate and they come within five of hanging on to the House. And that is Steve Kornacki. He is so good. All right, coming up, Republicans are about to take over the House. As Steve just said, spoiler alert, things aren't going well. So if you're one of the main leaders of a political party that hits itself to a serial liar and known opportunist who never won the popular vote, lost re-election, got impeached twice, and then you still stood by while he propelled a bunch of fringe candidates into losing general election battles, well, then you might not be very good at your job. That, by the way, is the story of Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy has been the House Minority Leader, which would mean that he'd be poised to take over as Speaker of the House when Republicans take control of the House next month. But McCarthy, at the moment, does not appear to have enough votes to win the Speakership. So what is Kevin McCarthy doing? He's making sure no one else can get any work done in the House while he tries to lock down enough votes. McCarthy's taken the rare step of delaying races for committee leadership posts, until after his own election for speaker. This, according to Politico, is going to delay the actual work that gets done in congressional committees for days, if not weeks. Quote, some of the most important panels, including those charged with tax writing and border security, won't be able to prepare bills, tee up hearings, or even hire staff. McCarthy's counterpart in the Senate, however, is trying a different tack. Senate Majority Leader, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell also cozied up to Donald Trump and stood by while he trashed the GOP and democracy. Under McConnell's leadership, the Republicans actually lost a Senate seat in the midterms this year, even though they were favored to win control of the chamber. But now it appears that McConnell might have decided that it's finally safe to turn on Donald Trump. After years of refusing to call out the twice-impeached ex-president by name for mm, anything, McConnell this week blamed Trump and his diminished political clout for the Republican Party's actual shortcomings in the election. He told my colleague Sahil Kapoor, quote, we lost support that we needed among independents and moderate Republicans, primarily related to the view they had of us as a party 
largely made by the former president, that we were sort of nasty and tended toward chaos. Nasty and tended toward chaos. Joining me now, Jennifer Rubin, opinion writer for The Washington Post and an MSNBC political analyst. Also, here is Joe Walsh, former Republican congressman from Illinois, a 2020 Republican presidential candidate, the host of the podcast White Flag with Joe Walsh. Good morning to both of you. Good afternoon. I've been doing this all day. It's an afternoon now. It's unusual for me. Um, kind of remarkable, Jen. Uh, that, that Mitch McConnell has come to the conclusion that people started thinking of the Republican Party as sort of nasty and tending toward chaos because of Donald Trump. I mean, I guess better late than never. Imagine the grief he could have saved yeah. if he had voted in the second impeachment trial to convict Donald Trump. None of what you've just sketched out would have happened. But of course, he didn't. And he tried the game of trying to straddle both sides of the Republican Party. Um, but I think he has actually more animus towards the House Republicans than he does towards Democrats these days. I think he has always run a tight ship. He knows when to get things done. He's very concerned about about uh, Ukraine and uh, national security. And I think he just has a, an overwhelming amount of contempt for not only uh, Kevin McCarthy specifically, who can't get his ducks in a row, but for the crazies over there who can't decide what they want to do, who act up during a stark speech from President Zelensky of uh, Ukraine and are just running around with their heads cut off. So I think for Mr. Uh, McConnell, uh, welcome to Never Trump. I don't know how to uh, interpret uh, his belated awakening, um, but at least he's come around to the view that perhaps some normalcy would help the Republican Party. Perhaps it will. Let's let's put our attention on the House for a second, Joe, where you served. There are uh, six people at the moment uh, running against Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House. Um, there are often people who will run knowing they're not going to win. But in this particular case, six individual people running against uh, Kevin McCarthy could prevent him from getting the votes to become speaker. What happens now? Because none of these six people can actually garner the votes to become speaker themselves. Do, 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 do people rally around them? Does, does this just get delayed and eventually McCarthy becomes speaker? What happens? I think that, Ellie. I think, look, I think the way this will play out, McCarthy will eventually become speaker, but he's damaged goods. Quickly on what Jen said, Mitch McConnell is not a never-Trumper. Mitch has been down this road before. Uh, it doesn't matter what Mitch McConnell says. The base of the party is not where McConnell is. But, Ali, as, as the House goes, I served in the House. The House of Representatives represents the base of the party, much more so than the Senate does. And the base of the Republican Party is fully radicalized. The base of the party is Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. I served with Kevin McCarthy. He, he's not an ideologue. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, believe in what the base believes in. He doesn't believe in anything. He's a political operator. That's why he's so tortured right now, because he's trying to sound like Marjorie Taylor Greene to appease Marjorie Taylor Greene to become the speaker. But that's not who he is at all. I think he'll eventually get it, Ali. But he sold every inch of his body to get it. Jen Rubin, what this is not ideal because Kevin McCarthy can uh, probably make himself speaker. He can probably get that role. But now he's got this problem because what Joe just said is he's got to talk like Marjorie Taylor Greene or he's got to appeal to uh, that part of the Republican Party, which the whole exercise of these midterm elections has demonstrated to most Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, 
doesn't work. It's 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 not a winning strategy. That's right. And what he's going to do is um, for the next two years, cater to the very people who are unpopular. He's going to put them in prime uh, House uh, seats for chairmanship. They're going to create these three ring circus of hearings. They're going to spew a lot of these conspiracy theories. And the rest of the country, um, I suspect, is going to look at this circus and conclude two things. One, I don't want these people in power anymore. And two, if that's what the Republicans stand for, maybe Joe Biden, as old as he is, um, isn't so bad after all. So I think this is not only harmful for McCarthy and the chances of holding on to the House in 2024, which now, in contrast to 2022, the Democrats were in this shape. They only need to lose five seats and they'll be out. But I think it, it creates another problem for the Republican Party that cannot seem to get this Trumpism uh, out of their system, even if Trump uh, is in serious decline and facing a whole smattering of legal problems. The, the problem, Joe, is that this is like a cat that's tasted human flesh at this point, right? I, I, I remind people that back when you were in Congress, you were a couple ballrooms to the right of the mainstream yes. of the Republican <laughs> Party at the time. And there are people who were in that position um, who are sensing that they've got power. They've got strength. They can be disruptive to Kevin McCarthy, either in his uh, pursuit of the speakership or in anything else he tries to do. These people can actually possibly grind most of Congress to a halt for the next two years. How do you how do they reconcile that folks who were in your camp? How do they reconcile the idea that the only way to move, move forward is to actually relinquish some of this power because we can have it. We can slow Congress down. We can stop uh, Congress and, and Kevin McCarthy from getting stuff done. But then what happens in two years? How do you present yourself to the voters? It's interesting, Ali. Look, we made life hell for John Boehner, the Freedom Caucus, us Tea Party guys did. Um, and you're so caught up in that, you're so caught up in what you believe in that you don't look at the bigger picture. But here's the other thing, Ali. I, I think Jen's right. The best thing that happened to the Democrats and Joe Biden is that the Republicans got control of the House because now the country is going to see a radicalized house because the house reflects the base. But these districts, Ali, are so gerrymandered and most of the crazies like Marjorie and Lauren Boebert, even though she had a close call, are pretty safe that it, they can get themselves reelected even if it hurts the party overall. Uh. They're much less concerned about that because they'll keep their fannies in the house. They'll get reelected year after year. And that's, I guess, the problem, Jennifer. All all politics is local. For, so a lot of these people, the six of them running against um, McCarthy, the Lauren Boeberts, who, by the way, had a close election. So maybe her local politics might have to change. But uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene did not have a close election. And I, I guess that's the problem. How do you reconcile between the people you're hearing from who keep sending you back to Congress and the, the, the health of the country and the health of the party that you're a member of? Well, this is the issue, and it's one of the reasons why gerrymandering and some of the other Democratic reforms that Democrats um, wanted to get done and didn't um, are so critical. And I think um, Joe put his finger on it, which is these people don't care about governance. They don't care about being productive. They are in it for the performance. They're in it for the fame. And all they care is about going back to the circus year after year after year to perform some more and get more hits on another uh, opponent 
opposing a cable channel. Um, all they care about is the fame that comes with this right wing kind of performance art. I think what we saw, however, that the country has a very limited appetite for that and that the country is trying to move on and trying to be somewhat serious about their politics. That means uh, Democrats um, are likely to do well in 2024 unless Republicans rediscover that politics is really about governance and about solving people's problems. Right. I, I come to the two of you a lot because you're both really smart people and neither of you think that's actually going to happen. But, you know, the world can change in two years. You, 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 Jen talked about Republican uh, right wing performance art. Joe, you made the point in a tweet um, on the 23rd. Remember, in my former world of right wing media, the truth no longer matters. The truth stopped mattering a long time ago. And I think your point is that these folks can feed off of this energy because they can go on right wing media and say whatever they want. And that's not where they're being held to account. No, my God, Ellie, you're, you're right. Ten years ago, I was extreme and you rightly called me extreme. But it was generally because we were fighting over issues too much. But we fought over issues. When I say the party is now radicalized, they no longer believe in truth and their political opponents now are mortal enemies. Uh, and so Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, all these people, I mean, they are they feel empowered to destroy the Democrats, not just to defeat them, but to destroy them. And that's why they're they're radicalized. That's why they'll investigate and they'll spend the yeah. next two years investigating every Democrat they can investigate. I uh, love having you two on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I encourage people to follow your 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 writing, your shows and your tweets. And and uh, while it's not relevant, uh, you had a really interesting tweet a few days ago, Joe, about how you d discovered a love of berries. So I I, I wish you a merry year of enjoying <laughs> berries. Uh, good to see both of you. Thanks very much. Jennifer Rubin is an opinion writer for The Washington Post and MSNBC political <laughs> analyst, the author of Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. Joe Walsh is a former Republican congressman from Illinois, host of White Flag with Joe Walsh, a really interesting uh, podcast, and the author of F Silence. That does it for me. Thanks for watching, Velshi. Catch me here next Saturday and Sunday morning, normal time, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Don't forget, Velshi, also available as a podcast. You can listen to the entire show on the go. You can subscribe uh, anywhere you get your podcast. Listen for free. Merry Christmas. 